So uh, I said at the beginning, uh, rather than a sermon, I'm going to share my testimony today. So why uh, today? Well, our key verse says, uh, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. If we know and love Jesus, there ought to be a change uh, in our lives, there ought to be a change uh, in our character. That doesn't mean uh, that we'll be perfect, but it does mean that our lives will be on a very different trajectory. Uh, Testimony literally means uh, evidence that is given in a court of law. Uh, And in this case, we're talking about evidence of the goodness of God, evidence that God is at work in the world and at work uh, in our lives. And I want to encourage all of us uh, to share testimonies of what God has done and is doing uh, in our lives. Uh, Testimony is a powerful witness to people out there who uh, perhaps aren't sure what to believe, and it's an encouragement to believers. Uh, The Apostle Paul shares his testimony twice uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, We want people to know that we worship a God who changes lives. Uh, so that's one of the reasons. The other uh, reason I'm sharing it today is that the, the media guy from the diocese, is, uh, ha, the diocese has asked Tiss and I to share our testimony uh, on radio, and I'm not sure when that's going to happen, uh, but I didn't want uh, anyone from this congregation to hear stuff on the radio or from any other source without hearing it here first. I thought, it, it, you know, you, you deserve to hear it uh, first. So uh, that's why I'm sharing um, today. Uh, so here it is, and um, this is not a story uh, that gives me glory. Uh, in in many ways, uh, it brings me shame. It highlights my my, my flaws and my failings, but it does uh, give God glory. Um, so I didn't really grow up in a Christian home. I think at best uh, we could have been described as uh, nominally Christian. I remember being at church uh, one Christmas Eve wondering what on earth we were doing there. It didn't seem to fit with uh, any other aspect of our lives. Um, But when I was about 10, uh, my mum came to faith. She came to faith uh, largely, uh, of course, the Holy Spirit, but um, humanly speaking, through uh, a very persistent lady called Mary Fairfield. I think most of us uh, would be uh, embarrassed to be uh, as, as persistent as Mary was, but actually that's what my mum needed at that point. And my mum uh, gave her life to Jesus. And um, I noticed a real change in my mum. Uh, not an overnight thing, but a, a steady, progressive change uh, in her character, a, a change for the better. And she would talk to me about Jesus and about faith and about the Christian message. Uh, normally, uh, laughing at night, at bedtime, uh, we'd have these long conversations. I'd have loads of questions, uh, partly because I was genuinely wanting to know the answers, uh, and partly because I wanted to drag out that, the point where I actually had to uh, go to bed. And uh, my mum my would, would, would patiently answer all my questions until my dad would shout up the stairs and, and uh, get my mum to, to, to go back down. And, and I made an initial uh, response. I uh, invited uh, Jesus into my life at the age of uh, 10 or 11. Um, but as I got a bit older and got into my teenage years, there seemed to be a real, uh, a real conflict between kind of the life that I was living and the, 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 the person that I, I, I felt that I was and the, and the Christian 
ideal as I saw it. And, and I, and I began to feel, uh, I guess very, very guilty. I felt a, a real hypocrite. I thought, I can't do this. I can't live up to that. Of course, these were my, uh, misconceptions. And I think the devil does this, doesn't he? He tries to drive a wedge between us and God. He tries to accuse us. Ah, oh, you're no good. You know, what, what kind of a Christian are you? Why are you bothering? This isn't, this isn't for you. Um, and so, uh, I, I started to move away, um, from the church. And, and to try to sort of cut that part out of my life um, in my teenage years. At the age of um, about 21, I joined the Royal Marines, and my life developed along two parallel tracks. Uh, there was my professional life that was largely positive. Um, I had a, a, a great group of mates. We, uh, we were really very close. We are traveling all over the world, doing lots of exciting things, um, served operationally in Afghanistan and Iraq and Northern Ireland. And, um, so that was, the, that was the professional side of life and that, that was all good. But there was the, uh, personal side of my life, um, which was a complete disaster. That was the other, the other track. And I guess there were three, uh, three areas, uh, where I was struggling, three things that were causing real problems. Um, one was, uh, drinking and violence. Um, another was uh, relationships. And, and, and the third was, uh, I guess, mental ill health. And those th- three things kind of fed into each other. And so it was a very turbulent um, period of my life. So um, the drinking and the violence, the fighting, uh, it wouldn't surprise anyone to know that uh, Royal Marines like a drink. Um, but I was definitely at the extreme end of the, the scale. And um, I think soldiering brings out the best and the worst uh, in people. And the thing is, with a, with a unit like the Royal Marines, it attracts very extreme people. The, the, the kind of people who want to join the Marines are, are people who want to live quite an extreme life. And you throw all those extreme people in together, and what would normally be considered in, in, in other circles to be quite outrageous behavior actually becomes quite normal and no one bats an eyelid. Uh, so you lose a sense of perspective over, you know, over, over what's happening in your life. Uh, behavior uh, gets downplayed. Um, so there'll be these situations, um, you know, I'm not going to go into all the details, not edifying, but, you know, there's sort of spaghetti western barroom brawls. Um, I remember on one occasion I had a, a glass smashing in my face. So I was hit over the back of the head with a chair on the, on the same evening. Um, it, things flying around all over, the, just like you see on the on the spaghetti westerns. Uh, the next day, uh, everyone th- we all thought it, you know my, my face was out here, had been stitched up, but it was all a big joke. You know, we were all laughing about it, like like it wasn't really a very serious situation. But of course, we know um, that it is. Uh, another occasion. Um, I, I got into trouble on a, on a night out and I escaped from lawful custody. Uh, that's an offence in the UK that carries a mandatory uh, prisoner sentence. That's when you're arrested and you escape from being uh, arrested. And there's a, there's a backstory to that, but um, I, I remember going to the police station to be cautioned, of all things, um, should have been charged, but there was a senior officer at the station who was an ex-Royal Marine, and he kind of intervened um, 
So instead of getting charged, I was being cautioned. And I remember the officer who was reading this caution, he started laughing. And he said, I can't believe you're getting cautioned uh, for this and all the other things that had happened on that particular evening. And then my solicitor uh, wrote me a letter and said, if you do anything else, uh, then you are going to prison. There's absolutely no uh, doubt about it. You should already be there. Um, I did, in fact, serve uh, a short prison sentence in a military prison, um, but that's slightly different from the, um, the civilian system. So that was... There's sort of the drinking, the fighting, the violence. You, 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 you can get the picture. You can fill in the gaps. And then there was relationships. And the grass was always greener. When I was out with the lads doing what they were doing and, uh, and um, you know, drinking and, and chasing after girls and all the stuff that we we're doing, I, 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 it didn't sit right. And I thought, I don't, you know, I, I want to be more settled. I need to be in a relationship. I need to, you know, have, have someone in my life. And I, and I would actually actively seek that. But then when I was in a relationship and I saw all the lads going off and doing what they were doing, they seemed to be having this, this amazing time. And I'd want to be doing that. So whatever I was doing in life, I was never really satisfied. I always wanted something, uh, something else. And you can imagine that that caused uh, a huge amount of instability and, and stress and problems uh, within any relationships uh, that I was in. And although the, um, I, I hold myself responsible for, um, you know, the, the, the kind of problems that, uh, that we were experiencing when, when I was in a relationship, um, it was still very stressful. So, I, for example, I can remember being on a ship in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and I phoned home and uh, to, to my girlfriend, and uh, she said, I can't talk now, I'm going out with someone. I said, who are you going out with? She said, none of your business. And I don't know whether the phone, uh, whether, whether there's a signal cut out or whether she put the phone down, but it went dead. And you imagine the stress of that. You know, when you, when you, when you can't do anything about it. Another time, uh, I phoned a different, uh, a girlfriend from, uh, Northern Ireland where I was serving, uh, at one o'clock in the morning. I knew she'd gone out. I just wanted to check she got back in okay. And, uh, a man answered the phone. And again, you can imagine how stressful these situations are. Uh, I'm not looking for, for, for sympathy. Um, this was my lifestyle, my choices that created these appalling and uh, difficult relationships. And then there was the, the issue of uh, mental ill health in, in, the, um, in the form of uh, intense stress, I would say. And uh, part of that will have been down, I expect, to the job that I was doing. Uh, but I actually believe it was more to do uh, with my personal life that I've been describing, uh, perhaps the way I'm wired. And, and also, I think when you know the truth, when you know the gospel, and you're trying to deny it in the way that you're living, you're trying to, re- trying to, trying to push it. Out. I didn't want the Christian message to be true at that point in my life, and I tried to deny that it was true, but, but I never really could. And this creates a real inner turmoil, when you know the truth and you're not living according to it, it creates uh, turmoil within. So you, you get the idea. You, you, can, you can fill in the gaps. You can, under, you can probably understand the kind of lifestyle uh, that I was living. Um, I eventually left the Royal Marines. And uh, at, at about the same time, I split up with uh, a woman that I thought I'd be spending the rest of my life with. And I made the worst decision that I've ever uh, made 
in my life, and that was to take my life. And I was at my um, parents' house, and I uh, strung up a, a rope from the loft hatch, um, a proper hangman's noose, and I stood on a, a, a little stool. And the last thing I can remember uh, was a, a screeching noise, and that was my last constricted breath. And then nothing. The lights went out, and it happened very, very quickly. And the um, girl that I split up with, she was downstairs, heard that noise, but didn't recognise what it was, and didn't come upstairs straight away. But eventually, later on, she did come upstairs, and she found me uh, hanging motionless, uh, ghostly white. Uh, I'd lost control of my bodily functions, and she assumed that I was dead. Um, my parents had a little shop next. Uh, post office next to the house. My mum was working in there, so she went down to tell my mum what had happened. And you can imagine it's not easy uh, to tell a mother that her son is dead. And by all accounts, it took a long time to to get those words out. Um, I don't know how long I was hanging there for, um, but it, it, we're talking at least minutes, not not seconds. Uh, my mum came into the house and she uh, rushed up the stairs and she was distraught as you can imagine and she was uh, uh, crying out to God uh, Jesus no Jesus Jesus no and I don't know whether I was dead or unconscious um, but that word Jesus uh, penetrated my unconsciousness and I opened my eyes and I started fighting for my life and um, my dad came home early uh, from wherever he'd been he always carries a little pen knife. He heard the commotion going on upstairs. He rushed upstairs, and he, he started reaching up towards the rope with the pen knife. Now, I don't know whether any of you have ever had a, a, a near-death experience or, or you, you thought you were going to die. Um, in those situations, the, the brain speeds up, and everything else slows down. And so I was watching him uh, in slow motion. It looked like his hand was moving about this quick as he reached up towards the rope. I had a lot of time to, to think. And I, th I felt very sad. I thought, no, you won't cut the rope with that, and I've got no more time, that's it. Uh, but he did, he cut me down. He took the rope off my neck. I was gasping for air. And I'll never forget his words. He said, um, he said come on, Charlie, we can do better than this. And uh, shortly after that, uh, I went traveling around the world, and it was very difficult for my parents, uh, less than a week after that happened, to say goodbye to me. My dad drove me to the coach station. We had a long chat. Uh, I got on a coach to London and then a flight to Guayaquil in Ecuador. And when I went traveling, it was like this really overt spiritual battle began. We're, we're all in a spiritual battle all the time. Uh, but it became so overt and so obvious uh, so I was in South America, and I'd take myself up into the Andes Mountains uh, for days at a time, uh, trekking. Um, I, and at those times, I'd try and connect with God. I, I'd cry out to God. I'd pray. There were occasions where I even sh was shouting at God. There's no one else to, to hear me. To see another human being, I would have had to walk a couple of days. And... Um, I felt like I was making some sort of connection, but then when I get down to the cities and the bright lights and everything that went with them, I'd found, find myself just getting drawn back into familiar, uh, negative, destructive patterns of behavior. Uh, on one occasion, I was in um, Bolivia, 
and I wanted to go into a place called San Pedro Prison. It's a very famous um, prison. It's a terrible place. Uh, the, the inmates are not fed. They're, they're, they have to rely on food coming out in from outside, but there's no food organized for them. They're not actually locked in cells. They're free to roam around the, the, the prison. Uh, they have little sort of gas cookers and kitchen areas where they prepare their own food. So they've all got access to meat cleavers and kitchen knives. Uh, you can imagine uh, the kind of place this is. They, they manufactured cocaine inside the prison and the guards were all making a big profit out of that. Uh, really horrendous place. Uh, but I decided I wanted to go in there and, and see it. They used to do tours of it for tourists until there was a riot during one of the tours and it all went horribly wrong and they stopped it. Um, but I went to the British Embassy uh, to see if there were any British people in the prison, and there was uh, one. And surprisingly, they gave me his name and uh, a few details about him. So I turned up with a, a little bag of goodies, uh, sweets and uh, lollies and uh, toiletries, and uh, I, I, I speak uh, enough Spanish to kind of explain what I uh, wanted to do, and I had to pay a bribe. And I went in, and I saw this guy, but he, he'd only just been... Um, in prison, so he wasn't very chatty, as you can imagine. But the guy who met me at the, there's like a little portcullis and the, with a gate in it. They, they opened this portcullis door, and I was met by this Swedish guy who was in this prison for drug smuggling. He'd been there for about three years. And this was a Swedish man in prison in Bolivia. And the only missionary that had been in that prison for years just happened to be a Swedish woman. And she had led him to Christ. And uh, he invited me back the next day to a church service. Uh, it, it was Sunday, and I went back the next day, and uh, I couldn't believe it. There was a there was a 150 guys in this church service. Uh, they were full of life. They were worshiping God. They were praising God. Um, the service was being led by a man called Camelo Dominguez Backer, who was a uh, a big drugs baron who was in cahoots with Pablo Escobar and all that bunch. Uh, and he was leading the service because he'd come to faith in the prison. And I really felt God speak to me in that moment, looking at these men, uh, some of whom were in there for life, living in this absolute hellhole, but full of joy. And they clearly had something that I didn't at that point. And I felt God say to me, do you really think that your life is so far gone that I can't bring you up out of that place and change things? And I felt that very strongly. But what kept happening on this trip was... Something like that would happen where God would really get my attention. And then, I'd, and then there'd be some really unusual uh, temptation, situation, something that would come in and, and, and kind of try and rob me of it immediately. And it, was, it became so overt, so obvious uh, what was happening. And, and, and this went on. I can't give you all the examples, but um, uh, that's what was happening. And um, eventually I found my way to Hong Kong. And uh, I was, um, I had a very heavy night out in Hong Kong and I woke up feeling pretty much how I would always feel after a night like that. I felt disappointed in myself. I felt empty. I felt disgusted with myself. I, I thought, well, what's all this about? And I looked at who I was as a person and I thought, this is not, this is not who I want to be. This is not who I aspired to be. This awful, dreadful, um, selfish uh, person that I was. And I got down on my knees and I invited Jesus into my life uh, afresh. Now, I'd prayed lots of times, um, but there was something different about this. The resolve behind it was different. It's like I really had, at this point, jumped down off the fence and made a decision 
for good. And I remember praying, I've probably mentioned it before, I remember praying, Lord, I, I, I know life is going to be really boring from now on, but I, I, I've got to do things your way, I know that. I, I couldn't have been more wrong about that. Um, I remember saying, I don't care what my mates think, I don't care what I have to leave behind, I don't care how things have to change, but I know that what I'm doing isn't working, and I want to do things your way. And at that moment, it felt what felt like a wave of love and forgiveness washed over me, and I, you know, at that point in my life, I, I, I thought I was a pretty hard, tough bloke, uh, and I just broke down in floods of tears, really sobbing for a very long time, and they were tears of sorrow for the life that I'd lived and the opportunities that I'd missed, uh, but also tears of joy because I experienced God's love and forgiveness in that moment. Uh, That was the point where I rededicated my life to Christ. And I was traveling overland from Hong Kong back to the UK. So I knew I wasn't going to be able to settle anywhere for any length of time. But I I, I wanted to have interaction with someone who was a Christian. And I don't think there's anything... Well, I I kind of thought about this since. And I thought, well, is this a right way to have been thinking? I'm not sure. But at the time, the way I was thinking, I thought, well, if I'm going to have contact with someone who's a Christian, it may as well be an attractive Christian woman. Uh, So I met someone online and we were exchanging emails and uh, talking about our lives. And every time I emailed it, we from somewhere different, somewhere in China or Mongolia or Siberia, Russia, you know, wherever wherever it was. And um, uh, we we, we exchanged emails for for a number of months and I returned to the UK and... um, I went to London for a job interview and I met that woman for lunch. Uh, many of you know and those of you don't have probably guessed already uh, that that's Tissa. Uh, we've been married um, nearly 14 years now. But when I was uh, traveling, when I made that uh, recommitment to Christ and I was traveling back from Hong Kong to the UK, I realized that something had changed. And, and I guess this is where it ties in most with the passage that, that God had changed my heart. Now, now, a lot of things take a while to change, and we're all a work in progress, but there were some things that had just changed straight away. Uh, I had a love and a compassion for people that I'd just never experienced before. I remember uh, going into a McDonald's in China. I'm ashamed to say I went into McDonald's in China, uh, but sometimes you get fed up with rice. And um, and, and outside with this uh, little girl of five or six, dressed in rags, begging and I'd, I'd never really even noticed people like that before. And um, I, I wanted to take her inside and sit her down and give her a meal, but I thought, well, that's going to look really dodgy, a Western man with this you know, little girl off the street. So I, I, I bought her a meal, and I took it out to just gave it to her as I, as I uh, walked out. And she looked at me, sheer, sheer, thank you, beaming face. And uh, like in that moment, I thought, there's something's changed. I really, you know, I really love this person. I, I, I care about this person. This, is, this hadn't happened to me before. And I had this policy. I, I, I thought, right, anyone who asks me for money, I'm going to give them money. Um, if someone needs money, I'm going to give them money. And I was told uh, so many times by people, you know, if you travel in India or China, don't give out money because you'll get mobbed and it'll be a real nightmare. Uh, but actually, that didn't happen at all. Uh, everyone who asked me for money, I was able to give them money. And it wasn't very much money. It wasn't very generous. Uh, but the fact is, I wanted to do it. And 
I'd never experienced that before. And I realized that God had begun uh, to change my heart. Uh, when I got back to the UK, and as I said, I'd met Tissa, um, I got a, offered a job uh, doing security work in Iraq, and that's what I thought I was going to be doing. Um, but Tissa and I prayed about it, and we thought about it, and we, we just said, that, no, this isn't right. This isn't what God's got for us. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with security work, but we just felt that this is not the right thing. Um, and so I turned it down. Um, but then we got married, and uh, I was living in London, and I was doing a job which I didn't see any future in. And I'm thinking, well, what next? And I had no clue what was going to come next. And um, God led me into working for a church in central London, Holy, Holy Trinity Brompton. as another story behind how that happened. Um, but then while I was working there, I felt the call to ordination. And I had no idea that, uh, certainly, that I'd ever end up doing something like this. Um, but also, um, I, I really didn't think that some of my, my background would be allowed to, uh, to, to get ordained in the Church of England. I just thought, no, there's no way uh, this is, this is going to happen. But God opened that door for me. God had a, a different plan. And you know, I think you know, the, the, the thing is, we're, we're all a work in progress. Uh, but when we give our lives to Christ, the direction of our lives changes. And I want to encourage all of us, and this is part of the reason I'm sharing this today, because I want to encourage all of us to be more open about our, our testimonies and, and, and talk more about what God is doing in our lives. It doesn't necessarily mean coming up to the front of church and sharing intimate details about our lives. God may call you to do that. He may not. Um, but certainly we should be telling people what God is doing in our lives and what God is doing in the world. Uh, that doesn't have to be our whole life story. It can just be something that God has done for us uh, in the last week or the last month. What is God doing in our lives? How is God changing us? How, how is God um, working in us and through us? And what are we seeing God do in the world around us? So I want to encourage us to do that. And for me, the best testimonies are not the dramatic testimonies. I'm aware that my testimony is a little bit more on the dramatic side, um, but they're not the best testimonies for me. The, the ones that I love hearing are people who say, I grew up in a Christian home, I've known and loved Jesus my whole life, and I've followed him. They're the best testimonies for me, because it shows me that it can be done. And, and as a father, I, I want to know that my children can experience you know, life in all its fullness and experience this relationship with Christ without having to go through all that stuff to get there. You know, often it's dramatic things that bring people to Christ. But it's much better if you can come to Christ and experience all that fullness of life without having to go through all the, the stuff to get there. So I encourage you um, to, to even practice you know, how, how would you share your testimony, what God, a summary of what God has done in your life? How would you share it in two minutes? You know, maybe with your, your, your spouse or your friend or your, 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 your children or whoever it is. Practice, okay, here's the two-minute version of what God has done in my life. And, and practice sharing your testimony and get, get to the point where it comes, you know, you can very naturally and easily tell the story of God's love, tell the story of what God has done and is doing in your life because it's powerful and people need to hear it.
Um, so that's, that's where we are. <laughs>